classical linguistic arches. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, we're slowly coming to the end of this series of Terrence McKenna Raps, and if you're joining us for the first time, I guess I should let you know that this is the ninth in what uh, looks like it's going to be a series of ten podcasts of sound bites from a workshop Terrence McKenna gave in the summer of 1998. When we left him in the last podcast, uh, Terrence was waxing eloquent about what happens to a seeker once she or he has found the magical essence of a true psychedelic experience. And as most of you already know, once you have ingested a large dose of, say, uh, psychedelic mushrooms for the first time, well, there's simply no turning back after that moment. You know, because from that moment on, as, as my friend Tony Rich once said when he was keynoting a, an ayahuasca conference, we do know what we know. And now for those of you who haven't yet had a, a well-guided and profound psychedelic experience, there, uh, there simply is no way to explain what a, an incredibly pure, crystalline, godlike experience this is. As Terence often said, you can spend the rest of your life sweeping out the ashram or following the rules of one of the paternalistic hierarchical religions that are tearing this world apart, or you can simply take the red pill and experience the truth for yourself. As I mentioned, I think, in the last podcast, I was 42 years old before I mustered up the courage to find out if I'd been lied to, and I hope it doesn't take the rest of you so long to wake up yourselves. Most of you have, otherwise you probably wouldn't even be tuned in here, would you? <laughs> well, that's enough for me right now. Let's, uh, let's listen to what the bard McKenna has to say about how a great culture can lose its way. It's a great puzzle how cultures lose their way. I mean, in the 20th century, we have the example of National Socialism in Germany. Uh, in the course of this weekend, we've talked about how Vedic India was based on the total celebration of some kind of psychedelic and that it was lost, 100% lost, so that, you know, there are a few pundits in India who claim they know what Soma is, but nobody can produce something which uh, performs as advertised. Greater than Indra, greater than Brahma, shaper of the world, Soma, it's uh, pouring forth from the Soma presses, gushing forth to intoxicate the multitudes, well, what kind of drug is this that you can have three daily pressings and intoxicate hundreds of people and, and it has no reputation for anything except the highest state of ecstasy? And this goes on for uh, 1,500 years and then bingo, nobody knows what it is, nobody makes it, nobody can find it. It's just something talked about in old books. How do cultures uh, lose their way? It's a hard thing for us to understand with our electronic obsession with you know preserving everything uh, digging in colonial outhouses and, co- and cataloging the pottery shards and all this we're savers of the past but uh, you know many times several times in Chinese history there have been enormous book burnings to basically dial back 
the cultural clock to zero and started ticking again. The burning of the Alexandrian Library was an event like that in the West. I mean, there were over a million volumes in the Alexandrian Library. And, you know, the guy who burned it said there are two kinds of books here. Those who contradict the Quran, they are heretical. And those that supplant the Quran, and they are superfluous. Let it all burn together. And that was the second burning of the Alexandrian Library. It was also burned by a Christian barbarian enthusiast called Alaric the Visigoth, the same clown who burned Eleusis behind. Yeah. Yeah. You. Um, I just have uh, two brief questions. The first one, I just wanted um, to um, to know more about the uh, visual puns of the uh, machine-like elves uh, and um, or elf-like machines. Um, and uh, the second question is, uh, I know of someone who recently went to Holland and they brought back some tryptophan. And uh, I've heard, I've read something in the literature about combining uh, NMAO inhibitor with tryptophan and. Uh, I just wanted to know if you knew anything about uh, the effects of that or anything like that. Well, I think tryptophan is an MAO inhibitor. I'm not sure. Uh, tryptophan is a common amino acid. Uh, if they're thinking of starting toward DMT, I think you can start from tryptophan, but I think it's easier to go from indole. Uh, as far as self-transforming elf machine puns, what exactly did you want to know about them? Just, um, just uh, <laughs> if you could kind of elaborate on the three-dimensional, four-dimensional, five, like, uh, what, maybe give an example of, I know it's kind of hard to put into words, but... Yeah, well, uh, it's some kind of, of uh, transformation of category where things are made out of things which are impossible. I mean, as I said, how can something be made out of yesterday, consomme, and uh, hope? It's impossible to conceive of something like that. And so, in the presence of these puns, they, they break down ordinary reality even more than it's broken down anyway in the DMT state. Uh, it's, it's like, you know, it's not enough that you're loaded on this psychedelic, mega hallucinogen now they tell you crazy jokes which you get uh, in that state it's sort of like the surrealists used this saw the pun as a way of opening the crack uh, uh, between the worlds and it would be a great challenge to artists to do this I mean the surrealist I'm thinking of who, who certainly leaned on this was René Magritte where, you know, foreground and background trade shape and uh, outlines of things are silhouettes of other things uh, and this sort of thing. Um, maybe it's a uniquely human capacity. I mean, we can argue about whether animals think or not, but I don't think anybody would give you much of an argument that they pun. That, that's, uh, there's very little evidence of, of that. Well, I think anything which gets people free associating and talking freely and making previously hidden connections in their personal 
in their biographical material in doing that in the presence of a skilled therapist. If the therapist then practices their craft with skill, it's hard to see how that isn't going to synergize the therapeutic process. Is there a venue for that in this country? Uh, you mean, are there people doing it? Yes. Well, it's very underground because uh, giving people these things without an IND is illegal and here you're dealing with people who are already self-defined as needing psychotherapy. And, uh, but some of you might know that book, The Secret Chief, uh, about uh, a psychotherapist. To this day, those of us who know him don't use his real name in public. In the book, he's called Jacob. But Jacob was a guy who so strongly believed in psychedelics. He was a superb therapist to begin with, fully credentialed. Uh, and he taught hundreds of people how to do psychedelic therapy. And uh, uh, someday that story will be told, because I think that was the heart and soul uh, of uh, of, tran- of transpersonal psychology in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, you know, the joke on psychotherapy is whether you're Jungian, Reichian, Kleinian, whatever you are, one-third get better, one-third get worse, one-third stay the same. Well, I don't really think that's true of psychedelic therapy. And the psychedelic therapy... It's arguable or it's a complex issue whether it should be used in cases where people are severely disturbed. The people who seem to profit most from psychedelics taken in the presence of psychotherapists are people I would describe as the worried well. You know, people who are anxious or have hit a block in their career or have a relationship coming apart but these things happen to people and uh, you know the uh, I know psychotherapists who I really believe probably 95% of every psychotherapeutic session they have with somebody changes a life for decades if not forever Uh, it's one of the great tragedies and you know we've taught McCarthyism has been bared and the blacklists in Hollywood we've all done our mea copas for that and the, the Rosenbergs and so forth and so on but we've never as a society dealt with the way science and human mental health care was sacrificed on the altar of government paranoia in the 60s in the name of repressing psychedelic drugs. I mean, there was work going on at Saskatoon in Canada with Humphrey Osmond and in other places. They were curing serious lifelong alcoholism with one, a single dose of 500 gamma of LSD in the presence of a psychotherapist. They were having uh, uh, incredible results treating addiction, serious trauma, all of this stuff, well, then that just went down the tubes. And uh, the psychotherapeutic community didn't have the political muscle or the guts or something to resist that. 
the scientific community, which is very quick to tell government and everybody else to take their hands off. They can do anything they want with studying human sexuality. They can do anything they want with animal experiments. They can do anything they want. Well, they just totally folded on this drug thing. And, you know, my brother is a professional drug designer, molecular chemist, and uh, his career, this whole story of his career is how unwelcome and uh, and uh, threatened people felt uh, by having good psychochemists in their presence. It's if you're going into medical pharmacology, stay away from psychedelics if you want to have any career uh, at all. The number of people who've been able to overcome those barriers and make significant careers and do research and publish, you can count on the finger of one hand. Is that true for the international community as well? Uh, it's not as bad, but it's still, most of the world just doesn't deal with it. I mean, Germany, there's some people, chemists, other people interested, so some Swiss people. It's sort of traditional there, you know. I mean, try and name a psychedelic drug that wasn't invented within 700 miles of Berlin. It can't be done. Uh, but, you know, the Japanese make no contribution. The English make no contribution. The French make no contribution. Uh, it's just uh, not looked at. Bizarre. Because the, the impact, you know, if you're a psychotherapist or a neurophysiologist or anybody else, the impact of giving somebody 200 micrograms of LSD, which is a vanishingly small amount of physical material, is, is just stunning. But it's not been pursued. Yeah. Ibogaine is interesting. Uh, ibogaine is an, a psychoactive alkaloid that occurs in a plant, Tabernanthe boga, that occurs in Western Africa, in the armpit of Africa, in Gabon and Zaire. And it's used, it's, uh, used traditionally, although we have no record of it being used by anybody before 1850, which is kind of peculiar, because it looks like an ancient usage, like people have been at this for thousands of years. But the Portuguese have been in there since the 1430s, and there's no mention of Ibogaine before 1850. Uh, it's a bush. You scrape the bark. You eat it. Uh, you hallucinate. The alkaloid is unique and psychoactive on its own. Um, the It's... The reason research is being done in this country and it's being somewhat talked about is because the claim is made that it interrupts heroin and cocaine addiction dramatically. I wouldn't rush to sign up for that. I mean, it may. I think all psychedelics have this ability. It's not that ibogaine is a magic bullet for heroin addiction. It's that if you take a strong psychedelic and you're an alcoholic or a junkie or an abuser or fucked up in some way, it's going to be very hard to go through that trip without confronting this. And then you just say, you know, I'm killing myself or I'm making the people around me unhappy and killing myself. And it's hard once you actually say these words to yourself not to form what good Catholics call a purpose of amendment, you know, to try and do better. Uh, so, 
you know, people say, well, this question of are we better people, I think it's possible to be a bad person and take psychedelics, but it's rare because it requires enormous powers of denial and ego. Uh, Most psychedelic people are pretty mellow because they're used to looking at the shadow and confronting the various facets of themselves and and other people. It, it's, it's a tolerant, gentle crowd, generally speaking. Um, if you look at, at, you know, the records, we have millions of people, even in this country, who claim to have some kind of encounter. And studies of most of them that have been done have shown that they tend to be very, what we would call, normal people. A lot of them have had no previous interest in this field at all, housewives, accountants, and so forth. So from that point of view, um, and many of them have also been scientists or, or people with, who are credentialed in some way. So to dismiss them as, you know, people who have had some kind of bias in that area, I don't think, I think we'd have to delve into that a little bit more, as I'm sure you've thought about. Also, I, I just read an article um, that was pretty incredible where I think a former Air Force officer came forth and said that he had been responsible for planting uh, technology from a crashed saucer in major corporations you know, in this country and that was eventually reverse engineered and uh, a lot of people feel are responsible for the increased technology since World War II, including the computer ship and a lot of other uh, things that have come about recently and, and certainly revolutionized uh, where we are right now. So I just, you know, wanted to ask you again to uh, if... Did you hear me right is what you're wondering. Yeah, right. I know your previous writings have been somewhat more more liberal in that regard. And well, um First of all, let me say, I saw a flying saucer, I saw it up close, I wrote about this in uh, True Hallucination. Uh, But there is, are you suggesting, you said millions of people believe they've been abducted. Are you suggesting that millions of people, that you believe that millions of people have been abducted? I I didn't say abducted, I said had some encounter with, like yourself possibly. Oh, well, if we, by some encounter, if what we mean is that some people have felt the cosmic giggle come near, I don't think you can get through life without that happening. The problem I have is, first of all, this is hard to talk about, but maybe worth talking about. First of all, because of my position as whatever I am, I get to meet all these people off stage, so to speak. And it's not been a confidence-building experience. Uh, also, I noticed you, you had a tendency in your question to lead with credentials an Air Force colonel, a Navy officer, a NASA, ex-NASA scientist. I mean, when I hear the phrase ex-NASA scientist, I reach for my revolver. Uh, 
this is a kind, I think what we have to, first of all, nice people do not understand how mendacious, scheming, lying, and bizarre, pathological people are. They can't imagine it. That's essentially what being a nice person means, is evil is a mystery to you. Uh, I think that uh, a lot of people are making a lot of money spreading anxiety. Anxiety is uh, cells. And uh, the earth change people, one by one, we tick past the Edgar Cayce prophecies that don't come true, one by one. You know, now every piece of physical evidence from the first 30 years of the UFO phenomenon has now been shown to be fake. All None of those photographs stand up under modern uh, computerological deconstruction. And so what I, I my method because I'm interested in the weird, the miraculous, the bizarre, the unearthly, the other. But my method has been to, to go to the place or the person or the thing and then not believe, ask hard questions. And everybody else goes and believes. Well, the truth doesn't require your belief to exist. But... Hokum does. Hokum requires a relationship between the consumer of the hokum. And uh, I've spent time, I've argued with Bud Hopkins, I've had lunch with Whitley Strieber, I've argued vociferously with John Mack, and these people are uh, second-class thinkers. You would not send them to investigate a bus accident. Uh, I'm sorry that this is true. I didn't know this. Uh, I assumed, as most people do, that the word expert has meaning. It has no meaning. It's just a piece, it's public relations flackery. You're a UFO expert if you say you're a UFO expert. And when you go into... Uh, so my method has been, as I said, to kick the tires and make it real. The other thing is and people don't like this, but to examine the messenger. Is the messenger, you know, you, you mentioned in your question, these people are normal, run-of-the-mill type people, accountants, lawyers, so forth and so on. In fact, when you look at these populations closely, they're weird. Uh, for example, let's, the abduction population a paper was written uh, showing that uh, the abduction population tends to cluster in middle-aged white women uh, of the middle class who who uh, do not who stay home. Well, what is that population, folks? That's the population of people who watch more daytime TV than any of the rest of us. If, if our average TV consumption is five and a half hours a day, this population is pulling up the slack for those of us who don't watch and is watching 15 hours a day. Uh, and, and this is an area where, you know, you see the newspapers being vended at the grocery store. Virgin Mom 9 gives birth to Alien Christ. 
uh, are we all clear that this is a joke? All of us, including the remedial readers and the people who just got off the boat from Somalia last week and everybody, are we all looking at it through the eyes of a Harvard intellectual with a BA in English literature? Uh, I'm not sure. So this is what I call the balkanization uh, of epistemology. Uh, and part of it has to do with us all, not nobody, apparently this was left out of our curriculum recently, uh, what's called rules of evidence. You know, if you're a lawyer, you learn what are called the rules of evidence. What does a given set of facts, what do a given set of facts actually mean? And in this UFO game, people, uh, first of all, they repeat things, never with citation. They say, did you see that article the other night or that thing on Channel 6 a few weeks ago about this thing that happened in Argentina where this... Uh, and it's never accompanied by citation. So it's a multi-networked game of telephone where these rumors move out and are endlessly adumbrated and, uh, and changed around, and uh, all for the purpose of filling in people's blank spaces. And I, the, the, I don't like the, the... See, I think there are two phenomena. I'm not saying there aren't strange lights in the sky that we may not know what they are and that they could be anything, but that's subject A. Subject B is the UFO community as a social phenomena. It's a paranoid community. These myths that are being propagated are always myths of disempowerment. It's that they came to Babylon and gave us an alphabet because we couldn't think it up ourselves. It's that they're giving us fiber optic technology and computer chips because we couldn't think it up ourselves. It's always about poor humanity receiving the largesse of the Space Brothers and all we have to do is trade them human fetal tissue and uh, some other stuff and they'll be happy. It's, uh, it's a backward fantasy that the media has drummed up into uh, uh, a hysteria. And uh, if you really care about it, if it really speaks to you, then you must go and investigate it. You cannot understand it by consuming it from the media. Uh, because all these people that you hear about, Jacques Vallée and Bud Hopkins and John Mack, the gods of this, do you think they would stand out if they were sitting here in this room? Do you think if we had them in front of us that these would be towering geniuses or men of deeper insight than you and I? Get real! You know, it's just, it's just the New Age book circuit. It's just marketing and people making careers. Not that they're insincere, but that they're limited, as you and I are limited by our, our understanding and our, and our past history. Uh, I, I was invited a few years ago to speak at a big UFO conclave in L.A., and I had never been to one. And I thought, as I'll bet most of you think, who have a moderate interest in this, that if you go to one of these things, what you will find is a whole bunch of sincere people who have had strange experiences and who are trying to figure it out together. Not, that is not 
what you find. What you find is Booth's, the Urantia book, Commander Rama, the Raelians, Billy Meyer, the Palladians, the Roswell incident. And these people operate side by side, having coffee, holding smokers for each other, and so forth and so on, with no sense of, co- of cognitive dissonance whatsoever. You know, they, it doesn't ever strike them that if the Raelians are right, then how can Commander Rama be right? And if he's right, how can Billy Meyer and the poli- This doesn't come up as an issue. And you realize these people are having a lot of fun. And, but they are not. This is a support group for some kind of fallout from a religious hysteria. This is not about the study of strange lights seen in the sky at night. And if you try to talk about that, people will just look at you like, you know, who let you in? Uh, you know, it's now all about channelings and prophecies and the rise of Atlantis and the beam from the center of the galactic uh, whoop-de-doo and the photon belt and the coming of Malkut Sedek if Maitreya will get out of the way and on and on and on. And I find the only defense against this is the conjuring rod of irony and reason. Uh, you know, if it if it seems absurd, it probably is absurd. Now, I'm not saying that the world isn't strange. I'm actually saying that the world is stranger than these cheerful UFO enthusiasts can even begin to imagine. The stars are so diffuse in space and time. The evolutionary time spans available to life so vast that the idea that the alien intelligence will, you know, communicate through sparkling-eyed, blue-eyed, middle-aged women with bowl haircuts and moo-moos is mind-boggling to me. And, uh, and so it's just a matter of, and, you know, how do you tell? And I have this argument with Ralph all the time and Rupert because they're both softer than I am. And I'm getting more hard-boiled in my old age because I see how a lot of people take all this stuff much too seriously and can't even really think straight. I read an interesting essay a few months ago in a, in a book about all this by Douglas Stillings. And he said, when you encounter somebody with a strange belief, uh, the question to, we have been asking the wrong question. The question we've been asking is, why do you believe this? Wrong question. The question we should be asking is, why do you believe that you believe this? Because the interesting thing is, these people don't act differently than you and me. Somebody can claim they were an abductee and they did this and they did that. They don't act the way I would act if I were abducted. If I were abducted, I would come apart at the seams. Do you realize the implications of being abducted by an alien spacecraft? I don't think I would be satisfied to just tell my story to John Mack and become case number 232 and then sit back and let him handle the public relations fallout of it. These people do not behave 
as though their story was true. They behave as though it's a story. And so somehow what we're dealing with here is clashes of epistemic values. The Carlos Castaneda phenomenon was a good example. Half the people who want to talk about Castaneda want to talk about, is it true or not, or was this guy some kind of a charlatan? The other half says, what kind of a question is that? You don't even understand the issue. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. Well, without taking sides on that issue, notice that these two groups don't have much to negotiate because for them the very notion of truth has taken on a different meaning. One is saying the truth of myth is truth and the other is saying the truth of myth is a bullshit concept. We want to know if this is the truth or not. Um, Yeah. About psychotherapeutic use of uh, psychedelics and the, the lack thereof in, in this country and in other countries, do you foresee an increase of that with um, the decline of the nation state and the rise of the World Wide Web, as you've uh, sort of laid it out? The a rise in psychedelic therapy? Well, because it, it, from, from what I understood of what you were saying, the one of the main reasons why that's been you know marginalized and pushed under and, and scheduled to the degree that it's been scheduled is because the nation state it doesn't serve the nation state to have psychedelic activity going on 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 a, on a large scale and so if you know nation states you know in the next fifteen to twenty years go on the, on the decline and are marginalized in their power and scope. And you know, either you know, corporations or, or global community take over. Will you see, do you foresee a, a rise in psychedelic use uh, in the? Yeah, I think so. I think you know, we talked about the world corporate entity that's emerging. That the world is being replaced by t- from 200 nations to a thousand corporations. Uh, the values are very different. Uh, Corporations are not particularly interested in suppressing dissent in quite the same way that nations are because corporations don't argue their existence from a philosophical position. Uh, The other thing is uh, corporations hate unregulated markets. And so I can imagine, I mean, drugs are a commodity, uh, an enormous money-making engine. And it would be better for everyone, uh, cynics, users, purists, uh, uh, manufacturers, physicians, governments, if drugs were simply an ordinary commodity. And if abuse of drugs was treated uh, like any other mental aberration, uh, simply you would be dumped into the mental health care system for treatment rather than criminalized and, uh, and humiliated. It would be much cheaper for health care management and the legal system to treat it this way. Essentially, the situation now, the reason drugs are so severely repressed when it's such a money-losing proposition to do that is because the nation-state is carrying out a vestigial obligation to the church to Central European Calvinism. I mean, the reason drugs are illegal is because they're evil 
fundamentally. Well, I think the corporate state will move beyond such uh, theological claptrap and just say, well, they may be evil, but uh, so is pornography. So are a lot of things that we traffic in with great gusto. Uh, The shift to the world corporate state is an ambiguous thing. The nation state used war as an instrument of national policy. Corporations don't do that. I mean, yes, there is a large trade in armaments, and those arms are created by corporations, but armament trade is a small percentage of overall global economic activity. The world could live without corporations that produce armaments, and so could uh, capitalism. The world corporate state is unfriendly to racism. In fact, it doesn't like any kind of boundary definitions in the customer class. It wants everybody to think of themselves as Joe Normal with the buying patterns and tastes of Joe Normal. Um, What the other differences? Well, it's non-ideological. You know, all the world corporate state wants to do is pick your pocket which when you think of the political agendas we've survived in the 20th century, somebody who just wants to pick your pocket doesn't exactly sound too bad. Yeah. Yeah, that's a difficult question because of, um, when you have corporations, you have, um, you have things that have to be manufactured. I've been dealing with the uprising in Chiapas. You know, um, somebody has to make the stuff. There is a point where there are uprisings and where, um, where it is shut down, where there is great violence that occurs, um, we don't hear about it. You mean violence at the behest of corporatism? Indeed. Yes, but Indeed. it's nothing like erasing the cities of Europe by aerial bombing or something like that. I agree, there's a low level of... of it may be low level. It seems fairly high level where, you know, a company will go in and say, you know, um, Guatemala is becoming a socialist. Um, let's go to the law firm. We'll hire the lawyers. They'll get in touch with the political people and we'll go down there and, you know, assassinate whoever so that United Fruit can continue. That's just, you know... An easy example. Well, if assassination is a tool of corporate uh, statecraft, I've always sort of leaned toward assassination. Have you ever noticed how few innocent people get ground up in assassinations? I mean, if someone had assassinated Saddam Hussein, those 100,000 Iraqi soldiers who were buried alive in the pits in the desert might have lived to tell the tale to their grandchildren. But governments are horrified by assassination. Oh, Lord, no, you would never do that. The entire fabric of diplomatic understandings established since the Congress of Vienna would uh, come unglued. Far better to conscript a million 18-year-olds and send them off to try to kill the leader by the fair rules of, uh, of international diplomacy. Uh, the, the, the question, you know, capitalism is so triumphant now that its salvation will probably have to be self-generated. 
In other words, it's not going to come from slave uprisings or a papal encyclical or uh, it's simply that capitalism is going to have to grow smarter. And they're trying to do this. And once they smarten beyond a certain point, they will carry out what is essentially a Marxist analysis of their own situation and realize we can't keep doing this because the open system of exploitable natural resources that we are assuming doesn't exist anymore. And we can't lift everybody to the level of the American middle class without cutting down every tree and digging every vein of metal on the, on the planet. Now there are, there are always, as I've tried to stress in this weekend, there are always technological fixes. And it may be that there will be a technological fix for this as well. One thing we haven't talked about it at all, maybe it's been mentioned, but certainly not unpacked, is uh, nanotechnology. You know, nanotechnology is, is something as mind-boggling as the internet or psychedelic drugs, and it isn't exactly related to either one of them. You all know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about these people, many of whom are clustered down in Cambridge and Boston, who, who propose that uh, we're on the brink of an entirely new way of making things, that things can be made from the atoms up in chemical soups, uh, that everything should be as small as possible. And these are people who have gotten, you know, 1,500 steam engines onto a one-centimeter chip. Uh, the cover of Scientific American a few years ago had this one-centimeter one centimeter chip with over 1,500 steam engines on it. More steam engines than were operating in England at the height of the age of steam. Now, of course, each one of these steam engines produced one ten-thousandth of a millinewton of force not much, but at the molecular level, enough to kick uh, a tiny molecular gear into action or throw a switch or something like that. Nanotechnology is coming. It's so mind-boggling that they haven't spent any money on public relations, in other words, getting the people ready. So very few people realize how close this is. I mean, the AI may be off in the mists of time. Practical nanotechnology is already here. Uh, you know, they make electric motors, 16 of which can fit inside a human hair. And what's envisioned is a world of aerosol dusts that are architected machines that are creeping over our bodies, through our bloodstream, in our houses, inside our larger machines. Uh, and everything is made of diamond because diamond is the easiest material to manipulate at the atomic level. Uh, the the holy grail of nanotechnology is something called a matter compiler. A matter compiler has its nose in a muddy ditch or an, o an ocean estuary or something like that. And you, it, 
it essentially does to matter what Photoshop 5.0 does to images. Anything you want. So what's being brought in is a kind of sludge-like raw feed. It could be, in fact, in the nanotechnological future, the great real estate bonanzas will be toxic dumps. Uh, because there you will send the nanotechnologically designed bacterial machines into the dumps and they'll bring out the gold, the platinum, the phosphorus, the arsenic, atom by atom, and stack it up for you. You can have a closed resource cycle based on the standing crop of already extracted metals. Uh, people talk about abandoning agriculture abandoning agriculture because the populations of India and China will be fed out of matter compilers that turn seawater directly into rice. Uh, this could be done. How do we feel about that? Are we willing to give up agriculture if it means an entirely artificial food cycle for us, but the restoration of millions of acres of forest and prairie and meadow and grassland? These kinds of uh, choices lie uh, in the immediate future. Yeah. Well, when do time machines uh, arrive from the future? The question of time machines. Well, this relates to the speculation about the singularity. You know, one one scenario for envisioning the singularity at the end of time would be here we've had this graph which for millions of years has described the unfolding of, of process. And, uh, and then at 2012, at this certain date in 2012, it reaches infinity or it stops working. In any case, it indicates novelty becomes maximized at infinity and then there is no more time. Well, you know, trying to imagine various scenarios which would destroy time or obsolete time, one is a technology for moving through time. The literal annihilation of time by uh, vehicular traversing of it. Uh, well, time machines have a checkered intellectual history. Uh, some people claim with good reason they're impossible. Other people claim they're only impossible under certain conditions. What's usually put against a time machine theory is what's called the grandfather paradox. The grandfather paradox is if I had a time machine and I traveled into the past, I could kill my grandfather. Then I wouldn't exist then I wouldn't have a time machine, then I couldn't travel into the past, so how could I kill my grandfather? So w this apparent logical contradiction is used to say that the, the travel is impossible. Notice it doesn't restrict travel forward, in the forward direction. In quantum physics, it's routine to ha handle, to send charges uh, uh, and qualities backward through time in these equations and people have always said well it's just a mathematical convention it doesn't really mean anything in the real world well but how do we know we, we don't know uh, 
as we approach the speed of light, according to Einstein's theory of relativity, time slows to nothingness. At, at the speed of light, time is at zero, eternity. If you were a photon, you would have no notion of time at all, but the universe would appear to be aging wildly around you, but you would have no sense of, uh, of time passing. Uh, it, are time travel technologies possible? A lot of people are beginning to think so. Some of them require almost godlike technologies. In other words, if you could spin a cylinder uh, whose radius was that of the planet Saturn and whose longitudinal length was ten times that, if you could spin it at the speed of light and you traversed its perpendicular axis, theory indicates you would be spun into the past. Uh, well, we can't even dream of technologies like that. But it seems to indicate that in principle these things can be done. Some people believe there are black holes in the universe that, or wormholes that might be potential doorways to other dimensions. The wormhole theorists calculate what kind of energies it would take to pry open the mouth of one of these wormholes and hold it open long enough to push some information down it. Well, it's materials, orders of magnitude more tensile in their strength than anything we can produce, but still not inconceivable uh, in some far-flung future. Uh, My notion about a time machine is that it's not what it looks like. Um, If you had a time machine and you used it and it worked, I think it would actually have the effect of causing the rest of the history of the local universe to happen instantly because it would collapse uh, the local uh, assumption of a symmetrically evolving um, dimension. What I mean by that is uh, in order to keep the grandfather... Well, here's the idea. Suppose you had a time machine that you had never used. You were the inventor of the first time machine. And on a certain day, you used it and sailed off into time, the future. Well, then the presumption would be, since you're the inventor of the first time machine, that just moments after that event, time machines from all points in the future would converge on your departure point people who would come back to see the first voyage into time. This is presuming a universe where you can travel back into time, but only as far as the invention of the first time machine. This is the kind of universe I think we're living in for no good reason other than this is what the mushroom told me. I said, you know, is time travel possible? And it said yes, and I said into the future, and it said yes, and I said into the past, and it said only as far into the past as the moment of the invention of the first time machine. I said why, and it said because before that there were no time machines. Duh. (laughs) So, So in that kind of a universe, when you sail back in time, and get to the 
the, to keep the grandfather paradox from happening, I think all the rest of time happens instantly. So it becomes more like a god whistle, more like some kind of evolutionary fast-forward button where you're somewhere in the historical continuum messing around with technology and society and this and that. Then you invent a time machine and zip, the rest of history happens uh, in the next few milliseconds as the whole thing goes nova. Well, how was that for a wild ride? I only noted the major topics that Terrence touched on in those brief 50 minutes or so and what I wrote down was how a great culture can lose its way self-transforming machine elves the secret chief and the story of psychedelic psychotherapy UFOs and the UFO community as a social phenomenon the balkanization of epistemology psychedelics in the age of the world corporate state nanotechnology time machines and the singularity <laughs> and when you realize that he's not using notes that this is all coming right off the top of his head well to me it's even more amazing and, and his use of the language I think is, is exceptional but that was Terence by the way have you been uh, thinking about synchronicity since I mentioned it last week well here's one that happened just a few minutes ago I just finished editing the talk that you just heard and was thinking about how far out Terence could get, talking about time travel and stuff like that, but from a rational, scientific, and yet very psychedelically philosophical point of view. And uh, right then I, I decided to check my email before I recorded this segment, and as I was waiting for it to download, the thought popped into my head that I'd really give most anything right now to be able to hear a fireside chat between Terence and the man I consider to be really right out there on the far edge of consciousness research. And that's my good friend Zoe Seven. And you, you probably know the rest of the story by now, don't you? <laughs> yep, the last message to come in was from Zoe. Don't you love it when things like that happen? <laughs> when a, a little synchronicity like that happens to me, I explore it a bit to see if there's a message somewhere in there for me. So I read Zoe's email with that in mind and noticed that one of the things he mentioned was a website that I suspect most of you have probably already heard about. It's uh, David J. Brown's site, Mavericks of the Mind, and uh, you can find it at www.mavericksofthemind.com. It's an interesting site that has interviews of many of the early luminaries of the psychedelic movement. And in the interview with Terence, I found the following McKennaism. He said, We're moving towards something very much like eternal dreaming going into the imagination and staying there and that would be like a lucid dream that knew no end but what had a tight simple solution the psychedelics the near-death experience the lucid dreaming the meditational reveries all of these things are pieces of a puzzle about how to create a new cultural dimension that we can all live in a little more sanely than we've been living in this dimension. I like that, don't you? So thank you, Zoe Seven, for leading me to that. And by the way, if you haven't read Zoe's first book, Into the Void, you might want to do that soon. I think it's probably already close to becoming a classic. In fact, if you go to 
our PalenqueNorte.org site, and that's the corner of MatrixMasters.com where these podcasts originate. So if you go to PalenqueNorte.org and navigate to the 2003 original Burning Man lecture series and click on the title of our first Palenque Norte lecture, you'll see some pictures of John Henna giving that talk. And there uh, in the foreground is a copy of Into the Void that you can see in uh, several of the shots. Maybe we're starting to reach so many of you now because of some extra mojo we got from Zoe way back there in the beginning, huh? Anyway, after you read Into the Void, you'll probably want to read his next book, which has just been published. And in a few weeks, we'll be able to get a copy shipped from here in the U.S. Until now, uh, the books were only shipping from Argentina, and <laughs> the shipping cost was too high for most of us, uh, yours truly included. So uh, Zoe has fixed that, and uh, soon Back from the Void will also be available in the U.S. with a very reasonable shipping price. And Zoe's main website, by the way, is www.zoe7.com. Zoe7.com. And before long, he'll have a couple of new sites operating as well. I'll be sure to let you know when they come online. So uh, I guess I should say stay tuned if that's a thing you can say in a podcast. Huh? One other little announcement I'd like to make is that uh, Dr. Uh, Grobe would like to get the word out that he still needs seven more volunteers for his psilocybin study at Harbor UCLA Medical Center. Now, before you get too excited, <laughs> I need to tell you that the selection criteria is so strict for this study that you definitely don't want to qualify. You see, the participant population is restricted to stage 4 cancer patients who are also suffering from anxiety. And since stage 4 means terminal, less than a year to live, it seems to me that you'd have to be a little anxious. <laughs> And uh, you can get the details about this study at www.canceranxietystudy.org. So if you know of anyone who might meet the criteria, it would be nice of you to pass that URL along to them. Well, the next podcast will bring this series of Terrence McKenna talks to a close. And following that, we'll hear the talk that Nick Sand gave at the Mind States Conference in 2001 shortly after he was released from prison. So those of you who experienced the 60s might know of Nick, maybe not by name, but by the name of his most famous product, Orange Sunshine. Well, I guess that about does it for today. I, I really do appreciate you joining us all here in the Psychedelic Salon, and I want to thank you for all the kind emails you've sent. If I ever get caught up again after this move I'm in the middle of right now, I might even be able to answer some of you. But if you don't hear back from me right away, uh, it isn't because I don't care. I do read everything that comes in. So thanks again to all of you for being here. And thanks again to Chateau Hayuk for the use of their music here in the Psychedelic Salon. For now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends. <laughs>